I think I said something this morning about a, a, a seamless transition from the metta mindfulness to vipassana mindfulness. I hope I'm right. To protect myself, I thought I'd start with this poem by Louise Erdrich called Advice to Myself. It seems to me it has something to do with after metta, entering Vipassana. She says, Leave the dishes. Let the celery rot in the bottom drawer of the refrigerator and an earthen scum harden on the kitchen floor. Leave the black crumbs in the bottom of the toaster. Throw the cracked bowl out and don't patch the cup. Don't patch anything. Don't mend. Buy safety pens. (laughs) Don't even sew on a button. Let the wind have its way. Then the earth that invades as dust, and then the dead foaming up in gray rolls underneath the couch. Talk to them. Tell them they are welcome. This is Vipassana. Don't keep, <laughs> don't keep all the pieces of the puzzles or the doll's tiny shoes in pairs. Don't worry who uses whose toothbrush or if anything matches at all. Accept one word to another, or a thought. Pursue the authentic. Decide first what is authentic, then go after it with all your heart. Your heart, that place you don't even think of cleaning out. That closet stuffed with savage mementos, Don't sort the paper clips from screws from saved baby teeth or worry whether we're all eating cereal for dinner again. Don't answer the telephone, ever. Or weep over anything at all that breaks. Pink molds will grow within those sealed cartons in the refrigerator. Accept new forms of life and talk... (laughs) and talk to the dead, who drift in through the screen windows, who collect patiently on the tops of food jars and books. Recycle the mail. Don't read it. (laughs) Don't read anything. Accept what destroys the insulation between yourself and your experience or what pulls down, or what strikes at, or what shatters this ruse you call necessity. When I... Uh, first undertook a, uh, a, a longish period of the uh, of metta brahma vihara metta bhavana with my teacher 
in the uh, I had been single parenting for the greater part of four years uh, and completely surrendered to it as a as a parami practice you know practice of the spiritual virtues of generosity and renunciation and sila and wisdom and energy and patience, loving kindness, equanimity. Uh, and so it was a beautiful, a beautiful practice that um, uh, whose, whose fruits re- flowered four years later when I was able to do some months of practice again with Sayada Upandita. Um, so I went, I went to this retreat in, in a, another country, having longed to pick up again this Satipatthana practice, this mindfulness practice, and was inspired and excited by it, and, and therefore disappointed when he said he wanted me to, to practice metta bhavana. Um, and so uh, he, you know, gave instructions and I thanked him and said I'd waited a long time to to again take up practice and that, you know, I really had my, in my heart I wanted to do the, the, the satipatthana, the vipassana mindfulness. And he you know, nodded his head, and he again gave me the metta instructions. <laughs> so I took I took it up, and in, in the first few reportings, I would I would uh, communicate how, when certain qualities, a metta quality or an associated joy quality or contentment, peace quality, when it arose, I'd notice it appear and fall away. He said, no, 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 no. No, you have to hold on to that pleasant feeling of metta and the associated states. And I looked at him, you know, first time I ever heard him say, hold on to anything. And a couple more rounds of this, and then he said that I, I should take a solemn resolve you either mentioned this in the hall or to some of you individually, I forget, to let go the metta bhavana, I mean the uh, satipatthana, mindfulness practice, to let go and to take up and with determination concentrate and do the, the metta bhavana practice. And that you know, resolution or determination is one of those ten paramis. Uh, and it worked. Uh, and I, he, he held me with um, the meta subjects of myself and benefactor for about three weeks just to really deepen and mature the meta just on that single meta subject. For the sake of the metta itself, you know, progress wasn't moving along in, into greater categories or spreading it out further. Progress can be in just a very small 
locality, figuratively or, or literally, uh, and build it, as I was saying this morning, to fill, to fill oneself uh, to the brim. And then when metta is so filled in our own mind and body, it naturally category, uh, uh, cataracts over into the next pond. Uh, and then at, at a certain point, and I had no expectation, I didn't know what would be happening at all. Um, I, I, I trusted him like I had never trusted anyone ever in my life before. So at that point in three weeks, he then began to integrate the two practices where I would spend some time in the metta, and shift from metta bhavana, from mindfulness of of metta and the associated metta states to the present moment and exactly what was happening in the body and mind in the present moment, beginning with watching the metta consciousness itself dissolve, change, disappear, as all things do. And which is the basis of the Vipassana practice. Vipassana pasana means um, seeing, seeing with the inner vision, the inner eye of awareness. And the, the we, or vi, uh, means nature, the seeing nature, the seeing true nature, seeing the nature of things as they actually are in, in the moment. And we learn, as we will in these days, that not only is there this very powerful innate quality of metta in our mind stream, uh, but the ability of, this, of the same mindfulness you know, to shift from a, a single focus on this very powerful quality of being, metta, to, to the flow of all qualities, all elements of our being, all sensations, all elements of the body and the mind, and to zero in with awareness on that flowing nature and its insubstantiality and its ungraspability, that is, nothing there to hold on to, nothing stable, it's instability. And through that, and the many stages often in getting there of resistance and fear and uneasiness and uh, distortion, misperception, and so forth, but through that, the ultimate goal, not dissimilar from the Brahma-vihara metta, of deep inner peace and joy. The deep peace and joy that comes from insight, that comes from truth, that comes from seeing things as they truly are. And in that scene, you know, in the 
grasping of awareness, grasping of wisdom, awareness of the nature of things, a letting go. This, how can the mind hold on to anything that isn't, that isn't there? You know, that isn't permanent, that isn't stable, isn't secure, and isn't substantial. And thereby removing all the obstacles, hindrances, uh, foldings, inhibitions, and constrictions to the luminous mind of metta. Removing all of those obstacles. You know, and herein lies the, the seamless transition. We are still going to use this very profound and um, very difficult to find wordless quality of, of mindfulness called sati. Just a, a, a different attunement. Instead of inviting and calling up and abiding in the meta-nature of the mind, we are watching all natures of the mind and body. We are attuning to the truth, the behavioral nature of all things. And what we notice in the mind and body is, is the nature of the universe. Our experience of everything and all beings is seen, as the Buddha said, in this fathom-long body, mind. A little more direct confrontation. Many good questions about you know, how to work with the resistance and fear and sleepiness and the opposites of metta, you know, anger and resentment and unworthiness, shame and so forth. Uh, and the first uh, remedy, you know, usually our first answer is try to ex- expand the metta mind around that. You know, include that in the field of metta. In the Vipassana mindfulness, it's more face-to-face. This immediacy of confronting whatever obstacles arise, distractions, influences, um, patterns, patterns of mind, obsessive patterns, and wounded patterns, and judgments, and uh, you know contractions, how we pull back or how we lean forward, grasping the next moment, avoiding the moment. All, all those ways of not being in the present moment. And as we'll soon find out by experience, it's, it's um, as I say, too difficult to say what mindfulness is more easy to say what it does. It only is in the present moment. Mindfulness is only an alive, dynamic, clear seeing 
immediate awareness in this present moment. Anything to do with the past, the future, any projection or reflection is conceptual. We're well developed on the level of the conceptual mind, underdeveloped on the level of this pre-verbal, pre-symbolic stream of awareness. Now we have a, a, a powerful base of stillness and breadth, expansiveness from the metta, a ground, and a really poignant ground, a ground of the underlying motivation for all of practice in metta and compassion. And, and the stillness that that provides, I, I think a lot of the seamlessness you know, when it's there, I'm not saying it's always going to be there, uh, will be that, that groundedness and that ability to come back when we need to, to the heart of metta. You know, and to regain our sense of, of place in the moment, of groundedness in goodness, underlying goodness, in the luminous, innate nature, and then from there, you know, regain that sense of, of, of stillness and this very unusual scene, ability of, of mindful sight, insight, we call it. Insight because it is intuitive, not intellectual, not conceptual. It never works in the brain, you know, as a new set of beliefs replacing an old set. It works as a sudden illumination, like a flash of lightning. Like what was dark now is lit. And as if for the first time or as if for another time, but on a deeper level, we see what is about ourselves, body, mind, or life. So insight is, is um, immediate, personal, profoundly intuitive. It may be followed by reflection, but it is not preceded by that. And it is, self, it is itself not reflection. So we come up against these distractions, influences, the Pali word kilesa, which can mean a mind that is bent or warped or distorted or tortured. The defilements of mind that uh, askew experience. You know, r- rather than connecting and seeing as it is, we're grasping onto it, we're pushing it away, uh, we're seeing it in a sort of uh, diluted or a deluded way, or, a, um, or even the opposite of what it actually is. It's, and it's, as we'll see, it's painful to see things in a distorted way. It's kind of dizzying at first, but later it's actually painful not to see as it is. 
not to be in attunement with, with truth with, and, and guided by it, not to hear the truth, not to speak it, not to see it. It's painful. The delusion is as painful as what it veils, and what it veils are our actions of, of craving or grasping, greed in the mind, and ill will, aversion, fear, pushing away. But like with metta, you know, mindfulness is an, an open field with, without any agenda to get rid of these kalesas. It's, a, its only purpose is to see things as they are, to understand. Because only from understanding do the kile, are there conditions for the kilesa to fall away. That bent and tortured, warped uh, aspects of mind to transform. So it's all an investigation, a spirit of inquiry and investigation, and an interest in what's happening. I think I mentioned on the opening night that metta is intimately connected with the seven factors of enlightenment, seven factors of awakening. It, that It's a catalytic force behind all of them, beginning with mindfulness, and then the three energizing factors of, um, of intuitive investigation, which is a wisdom factor, energy, courageous energy, joyous interest, they all uplift the mind. And metta is, is intimately interconnected, is a catalyst for, a uh, fertilizer for tranquilizing factors in calm, tranquility, and equanimity. That's in our field of investigation as well, as well as their opposites, heedlessness, we need to know when we're not mindful. One of the most powerful kinds of mindful moments is when we've just realized we haven't been mindful. It's more painful to be ignorant of when we're not mindful and more illuminating, energizing to know when we haven't been mindful. And when wisdom, investigation is absent, you know, the mind is dull. When energy isn't there, we feel lethargic. We feel a lack of confidence and courage. We need to investigate. We need to know these aspects of our mind, our being, ourselves. Opposite of interest, joy, you know, boredom. The mind sort of at drift, at sea, and you know, to know that and know how to generate, how, how to re-engage interest in this wondrous mystery of this mind-body universe. Restlessness, opposite of calm. Scatteredness, opposite of serenity. You know, or unification of mind, samadhi. Reactiveness, opposite of, of um, equanimity. We're invited, we're inviting all these in, like all those 
dust royals under the couch and mold in the refrigerator. It's all welcome. If we don't understand them, then they'll be hidden. And what's hidden in the psyche and the unconscious has a unnatural control of our life and our thoughts and our actions. So we we use our awareness to recognize these uh, obstacles or obstructions, overcome or transform them through our, our mindful awareness. They too are our flow. That is, they too are anicca. They change moment to moment. And they too are without any stability. Can't count on, you know, we can't count on greed to last. No matter how much we might like our greedy minds at times, it's not going to last either. And it has no substantial, independent existence. It too is empty. Sometimes we, we, we recognize these natures with, with skillful states. You know, we get disappointed. We like our generous side. We like that sense of being generosity. We like that sense of being metta, of being clear-minded. And somehow mistake the opposites you know, the grasping and the ill will or the resentment, ignorance, as something more permanent. Why? Well, that's the nature of, of delusion in the mind. Delusion makes what is impermanent seem permanent. It distorts, remember? You know, so... We need that metta nature in the midst of our mindfulness. And luckily, mindfulness has this magnetic draw. It pulls into it all these other skillful associated states. Like metta itself, which is the non-judging, accepting uh, aspect of the mindful consciousness. It draws in the sense of unified mind and body. It draws in courageous energy, confidence, and um, uh, reverence, and gradually wisdom. It pulls in more and more wisdom. So awareness and wisdom are inseparable. So we, we, we want to treat you know, all these difficulties, greedy mind moments, these uh, dosa, uh, angry, uh, resentful mind moments, treat them all as simply phenomena, you know, so that we don't get caught in grasping for the pleasant, pushing away the unpleasant. There's only three real things. Everything else is con- is conceptual. 
three realities, realities because they are felt experience. We can know them. Three ultimate uh, dhammas. The body, all the elements of the body, we can feel the body. We can feel pressure and warmth and smoothness and roughness. We can feel texture. We can feel temperature. We can feel cohesion or fluidity. We can feel vibration or uprightness. All the elements in the archaic Indian uh, earth, water, fire, air. The actuality is what we experience every moment when we feel the body from within the body, when we aren't interpreting, conceptually interpreting or analyzing the felt experience of the body, but are directly engaged with it and feeling it. Body is real. Mind is real. We can feel the mind, mental states, thoughts. They have texture. Anger has texture. Love has a texture to it. Love opens and connects and reveals our nature. Anger or fear contract, close, darken, just the opposite. Every mental state we can experience as a felt experience, and consciousness itself we experience as a flow, as a stream. On the most subtle level, appearing, disappearing, moment to moment. These are all impermanent dhammas. They're not stable. We can't count on them for ultimate security and peace. And they're empty of self. The third reality is Nibbana. The unconditioned. The ultimate truth. What is not impermanent and what is not unstable or unsatisfactory. What can be counted on for ultimate peace, security, and happiness. And what is still empty of self. It's helpful, you know, in, in, in Buddha framing his teachings in the simplicity in the simplicity with which he did. Like, out of his direct experience, he came the four foundations of mindfulness, or four abidings of mindfulness. Joseph opened his talk with the other night. And, um, and I, I also intend to do a series of talks on the same subject. Uh, if we can coordinate it and not repeat each other. But even that's good. So felt experience, what's real, what can be known? You know, what is true nature? Mind and body. Non-greed, metta and compassion, joy. Greed itself. Loving kindness, anger, you know, all these are the natures to be known of ourselves. Illuminates the nature of the mind. And we come to know what's pleasant and what's unpleasant. 
which is extremely important because if we're not mindful of what's unpleasant, that can condition aversion or denial or splitting off in the mind. If we're not mindful of what's pleasant, it conditions grasping, it conditions wanting in the mind. And then there's just this consciousness of push and pull, this way of being which we're either avoiding or chasing all the time. If we move awareness toward things as they are, not away from reality, it's okay. It It may be unpleasant, but it's okay. Aversion to unpleasant is a reaction of mind, and that's when it doesn't feel okay. Grasping for pleasant is a reaction of mind. It moves us away from what's actually happening, away from the moment, and it doesn't feel okay. But directly in touch with pleasant or unpleasant, it's okay because it's real, and the mind is still in the present moment. The other night, Joseph then introduced, you know, the um, what is the direct path? Ekkayano mago, the one going, one direction path, meaning path of directness, the direct way to realization. And then he he read that he read the definition from that. Um, so I. I want to give a definition of, of, of satipatthana. There are many. And, and the one I give also comes from this um, commentary by Analio, the German monk, where he uses the, the word upatana from satipatthana. Sati is awareness. A special awareness. Special because it is attuned to the moment. Rather than Awareness like we may use it in many other ways to reflect on past and future. This is an awareness that only is attuned here and now, riding the wave of each moment's experience. Same way as a surfer on surfing on a board on a wave is just continuously with the rise and fall of this invisible energy wave it keeps lifting the water. It's not the same water from one moment to the next. Rather, it's a force moving along each moment, lifting up the water into a wave. And the skilled surfer responds to its changing nature, blends with the board, blends with the wave, and is one with the wave. Likewise, every moment of this flow experience of body and mind, these two primary realities, awareness rides the wave of that physical or mental experience, responsive to it, as long as we're mindful, non-reactive to it. If it's unpleasant, it's okay. And even a moment of contraction where we're aversive or, or greedy, that's noticed. And in the noticing, the greed falls away, anger falls away. You know, and, and as long as we keep riding the changing wave, otherwise, in surfing parlance, it's a wipeout. <laughs> and you get up. 
you know, get back up on your board and paddle back out for another wave. So upatana means placing near or a, a way of being present. Placing or a way of being present. The, the verb form of it, uh, upatahati, means standing upon or um, it implies presence. You know, and by being present, that abiding Abiding in awareness. It's not just abiding. It's abiding in awareness. Where the mind, we are awareness. There is a being of awareness, not doing awareness, but a being aware. And at the same time, it's it's extension or movement through experience through the body, through the mind, through the so-called six sense doors. So, for example, we start to be aware of, of seeing. And not so much the object of seeing. As, as we begin to understand, it's more the activity of awareness that's primary, not the object of awareness. The breath just serves as an anchor. The body just serves as an anchor for that present time awareness, for that abiding and extending awareness. The activity of awareness is primary, not so much the object. So we begin to learn, really, these six sense doors. The, the, the nature of seeing, not what is seen, but the phenomenal, you know, mysterious um, you know, magic of seeing and hearing, not the object of sound, but the phenomena of hearing, scent, taste, sensation in the body, and, you know, and the vast mystery of the mind. It's, it's phenomenal power to construct or destruct, to know or to be asleep. So it's not that we don't study objects. We do, you know. We want to know the body as a body. I mean, awareness, whether it's of the breath. You know, it's not of the concept of breath. Awareness arises within the expanding, contracting, arising, falling abdomen. Or awareness arises within this stream, steady stream of sensations at the nostrils. Not from the head not from the brain. And we're feeling these changing textures and temperatures, vibrations and, and, uh, and flow nature, cohesive nature, and so forth. Like when you, we put our hand in flowing water, close our eyes and feel pressure, coolness, softness, you know, imagine if you've never felt water before. Many people, you know, never been to the sea and live so far away from a stream. Um, imagine that person, the first time putting their hand in 
the waves of the ocean or the stream of a river and what that would feel like. It's that kind of renewal that marks mindfulness. It's not the same moment from one moment of awareness to the next. Continual uh, rebirthing of awareness. Watching the breath. No two breaths alike. The, this summer, um, my mom's caregiver called and said, you better come over. I said, why? And she said, I, I think your mom is passing. I'm two miles away. So I get in the car, call Chandra, my daughter, she drives home from the North Shore where she's working uh, with uh, uh, an archaeologist. And so we converge at my mom's house, and I find her unconscious in some kind of seizure and, uh, and, and very labored breathing. And the color of her face is like no blood in the head, very blue. And we carry her into her room. And, um, and most of the day, we spend next to her, you know, lying next to her, talking to her. There's no response, no consciousness. Um, a few hours later, our do- uh, friend and student and doctor, um, all in one person, comes over and uh, you know, there's an understanding. My mom's almost 94. There's understanding, you know, when it's time, it's time not to take her to the hospital and, and uh, put her through calasis, torture, you know. And, and, and so she came around a little bit, but she, her, she was in another world. She was in a, a Bardo-like state. She was seeing things and and uh, so I, I spoke with her and said, so it's okay, you know, whatever you're seeing, it's okay. Sometimes she seemed a little surprised, sometimes shocked, sometimes a little afraid. Other times it was wondrous. She said something about, I see the virgin at one point. And then, and then her breathing got really radical. And I remember it from my dad's passing very, very labored in breath through the nostrils and out through the mouth, but more like through the throat with awful sound and some blood coming out and slower and slower and slower. You know, a lot of tears, really present, telling her it's okay, it's okay, and I loved her. Right down to the last breath. And after the last breath, she took another one. And she's been breathing ever since. (laughs) That was in July. She fell asleep for a long time. And then the caretakers, you know, washed her. And in the evening, she kind of came around. and, And she was looking at me like, who am I? And the caregiver said, you know, that's Stephen, your son. I said, I love you, Mom. She looked at me a long time and she says, I know you love me. 
I know Stephen loves me. You know, I came, I laid down next to her. Next day she was hungry and, you know, she was bright and present again. She lives in a threshold world a lot of the time, but, you know, the quality and spirit of her life is still really good. She appreciates deeply kind of where she is. It's just a, uh, it's a, it's a different world. She, she said to Chandra and I, she says, oh, how do you like my new house? A couple of days later. And Chandra says, how, how long have you been living here, Grandma? She says, oh, I think two or three weeks. She looked at me, you know, for affirmation. I said, Mom, how about almost 49 years? <laughs> and she broke up laughing, you know, realizing her own moment of delusion. And that's kind of still how, how it is. And uh, We breathe until we stop breathing. Uh, and in that you know, in that, in that process of breathing, we can, we can feel the awareness, the suttas, uh, which I'll read next time. It talks about being aware when the breath is short and shallow, being aware when it's uh, long and deep. To know that you're breathing short and shallow, to know that you're breathing long and deep. It doesn't mean thinking about it. This knowing is sampajanya. It's clear comprehension. It's the knowing mind of awareness. And later on I'll be talking about even uh, using as a focus of our attention awareness itself. The knowing mind watching the knowing mind. Awareness watching awareness. So, you know, often this is sort of uh, misunderstood when it says in the breathing, breathing in long, she knows, I breathe in long. Breathing out long, she knows, I breathe out long. But that knowing is a, a knowing awareness, not a thought process, an immediate knowing awareness. In, in Joseph, in in uh, reading the definition of the Satipatthana, uh, you know, and about being diligent, clearly knowing, mindful, I find it interesting. The word in Pali for diligent, atapi. Maybe he used ardent, but same word. Atapi is like. Tapas in the in the Sanskrit, heat. But, you know, there's a certain energy, and a certain cool heat in our awareness that keeps sort of uh, burning through the sleep, burning through the slumber, burning through our delusion about things. So diligence does not mean force. It's so critical to keep noticing tension in the mind and relaxing the mind, and then the body relaxes. Or you can do it the other way around. You notice tension in the body. You bring awareness there. 
And, you know, some are patterns and some stay for a while, but it's okay. Relax the awareness around that, not forcing it, not expecting it. But that will relax the mind. It's so critical. The, the, the practice becomes more and more subtle. Sensations become more and more subtle. Mental states goes more toward these insight stages, jhanas, uh, insight jhanas, which are very subtle states of consciousness, and they require greater and greater relaxation of mind in, in order for that subtle attunement and seeing. That's why we're not just looking for prominence in experience. You lose the sensation of the breath at the abdomen, so you, you, you go after the nostril sensation. That's usually not the most skillful means. Stay with the subtler sensations if you've chosen the abdomen or chest for your primary anchor. You know, or stay at the nostrils if that's your primary anchor. Even though it grows more subtle, you know, it requires that it's like listening to more subtle or more distant music in the, in, in, you know, far away so you can catch its timbre and tones and nuances. Likewise, it just gets quieter. We rest more in the stillness, see more, see a tremendous amount more. The aim, aim of, the, of the four satipatthanas, body awareness. Next time, I'll talk quite a bit about uh, mindfulness of body. In, in fact, in this sutta, there's more said about the body than all the other ones combined. Tremendous amount of, of teachings from the Buddha on the delight, the joy... Uh, the liberation, the peace, the insight that comes from from the body uh, as, as a as a pillar of awareness. In fact, one uh, one image used in the text is, you know, imagine a post of which six wild animals are tied to, and, and at first all these wild animals are pulling in different directions, you know, to go to go their way. And after some time, you know, of struggling and pulling, they begin to let go, they begin to relax, they see they can get along with each other, and they just, they just rest. They just stay present. Likewise, if we imagine our body as, as a pillar and the six senses of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking, emotive activity and thinking, uh, as like these six animals, just being anchored in this pillar of mindfulness of body becomes a delight and, and calms and soothes the activity of the senses and, until there's a deep understanding you know, of what the nature of seeing really is, not about the objects, what the nature of hearing is, not about the actual object of sound. 
body, feelings. One of the one of your few of your intentions the other morning. I want to understand the feeling tone, vedana, pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant. That feeling tone that, that is so critical in transforming feelings, conditioning, craving in the mind to have or get rid of to feelings, conditioning, awareness, and wisdom in the mind. Every moment of experience, there's a feeling tone through all the six sense doors. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, sight, sound, senses, thoughts, and so forth. Mind, talked about mind, anything to do with the mind. The thoughts, emotions, images, uh, and the knowing nature of mind itself. Everything arises from mind. In the first verse of the short sayings of Dhammapada of the Buddha, everything arises from mind. And dhammas, dhammas, um, in addition to meaning you know, dhamma as truth, as universal nature, as, as the liberating dhamma of nibbana. It also just means all things, all physical things, all mental things, all the constituents of reality. So dhammas here as four foundations is both unique and universal qualities. That as we study experientially hindrances, awakening factors, uh, the six senses, the, uh, the reality of this body known as the five khandhas, form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness, as well as universal truths like the four noble truths themselves, seven factors of enlightenment. Uh, essentially, all the teachings of the Buddha are contained in these four abidings, four satipatthanas. Uh, enough for tonight. I'll end with a poem, but actually one helpful, you know, I started to talk about mindfulness and because we're transiting into it. I'm calling this awareness, if you recall, if you remember, a... Um, pre-symbolic or pre-conceptual awareness. So it's very subtle, it's very quick, it's how we can know thoughts and concepts. It's how we can know symbols and imagination. Otherwise we're already identified with it. Pre-verbal. Before the thinking mind. Uh, Interestingly, there is a tension always there in every moment, but it so quickly proliferates into thoughts, concepts, constructs, interpretations, likes and dislikes. We hardly know it. So that's why this basis, we've been using metta as a basis for initial stillness and to relax, to extend this, expand this sense of relaxation and expansive awareness. I can both tune in to minutia 
and open sort of galactically, you know, to all things. The one thing that will help in, if we were to, you know, dissect a moment of mindfulness, um, this acronym that Michelle came up with called RAIN, R-A-I-N, where there's an initial recognition of what has arisen. Say it's fear. And following that is, you know, if mindfulness is still um, sort of attuned to the experience, there's an allowing of that moment of fear. An acceptance that it's there. It doesn't mean submission or identification, just that, okay, fear is here. It's often where we get stuck. It's often where there's resistance. And we have to know and work with the resistance. Let's say we notice the resistance, it falls away, and then we open to the fear. Next, there the I, she calls uh, interest. I, I add to that uh, that wisdom awakening factor called investigation, where we know the texture, we feel the nature of the fear, the characteristic, how it may contract or darken or constrict. Um, or lash out, and even a third eye, insight, that that fear is impermanent, it's unstable, unsatisfactory as a mental state, and it's insubstantial. It's not self. It's not me. It's not mine. And in the wake of that insight, the the mind disidentifies. Non-identification, that's the N of the acronym RAIN, non-identification or non-attachment. So keep that acronym in mind. It'll be helpful. You know, as stuff begins to come up, recognition, acceptance, um, and either interest, investigation, insight, or all three of those, non-identification, non-attachment. I'll end with a poem by Mary Oliver called Mindful. Every day I see or I hear something that more or less kills me with delight, that leaves me like a needle in the haystack of light. It is what I was born for, to look, to listen, to lose myself inside this soft world to instruct myself over and over in joy and acclamation. Nor am I talking about the exceptional, the fearful, the dreadful, the very extravagant, but of the ordinary, the common, the very drab, the daily presentations. Oh, good scholar, I say to myself, how can you help but grow wise with such teachings as these, the untrimmable light of the world. The oceans shine, the prayers that are made out of grass. The untrimmable light of the world, the oceans shine, the prayers that are made out of grass.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.